Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to Season 2 of Dead to Rights, the podcast. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. Today we bring you episode number 53, featuring author V.V. Drummond. V.V. is the author of In Extremis, a thriller published by Ecstasy Books in June of 2018. And V.V. is speaking to us all the way from sunny Costa Rica, so that's a little exotic tidbit for our listeners to know as well. Our story today will feature an old character of mine, Serenity Walker. I've never published Serenity, Rennie to her friends, but one of my goals for 2019 is to drag out the three old unpublished manuscripts and clean them up for public consumption. So this is just an introduction to Rennie, if you will. The story is titled The Right Light. Well, it's a new year and time for a quick review of 2018. All of us here at Carrick Publishing and Shea Carrick had a good year, no serious complaints. Goals were set and met, and fun was certainly had throughout the year. I hope the same was true for you, our listeners, though we know there are always struggles to be dealt with. Tammy and I implemented a gym-slash-swim routine in the last half of 2018, and we're loving it. So that's one health goal met. At least five or six times weekly, we head out first thing in the ungodly morning hours, and she works in the gym while I take the plunge for my morning swim. It's definitely helpful in the energy department, though at the end of the day, I can hardly stay awake for our shows. Ted's music compositions have been a wonder to us. We've enjoyed each new installment at his Ted Carrick Music YouTube channel as he works his way through his music program at university. Alex still works too hard, but I suspect he likes doing that. As most of you know, he is a leading economist in the North American construction industry, and the past few years have really offered a lot of material for research and analysis. You can also buy his light-hearted books and e-books at all major online retailers. Look for the Scoops series under Alec Carrick. Our oldest son, Thomas, and his fiancée, Holly, had some fabulous travels to the UK and Europe in 2018, broadening their horizons and establishing their contacts for her future career as a musicologist. And, as they used to say, that's all the news that's fit to print in the Carrick journals. So now we're delighted to introduce you to author V.V. Drummond. V.V. is the pseudonym of a published Canadian author, someone who does not want personal recognition to detract from the disturbing examination of how ordinary people sometimes make bad moral decisions in their busy lives and the price they have to pay for doing so. V.V., can you tell us where you're located? Uh, Right now I'm located uh, in Costa Rica, where I spent the winter writing. Oh, very good. That's really, really exotic locale, eh? Um, and does that tie in at all to your your work? Uh, no, it doesn't. Actually, I'm writing about, uh, I set my uh, uh, novel in uh, Toronto, actually. 
Oh, in Toronto. And Vivi Drummond is the author of In Extremis, which you can find available any place right now. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, your protagonist in In Extremis. Uh, well, um, I tried to, to uh, one of the part of my reason for getting into fiction was to take chances. And I didn't want to write anything that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a reader of thrillers and I've read a lot of them and I wanted to do something a little different. So uh, I wanted to take chances in my writing as well. So I decided to tell, uh, uh, choose a protagonist who was a woman. Obviously, I'm not a woman. And I wanted to write a thriller that uh, didn't depend on a, 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 a private eye or a detective sergeant or someone. I wanted the crime solved by ordinary people. And uh, Sharon uh, Barrington is uh, a, a very unhappy woman, a unhappy wedded woman who uh, is a little blind to uh, uh, her husband, her controlling husband, and what he's up to. And uh, so for a large part of the book, she doesn't, uh, uh, she, she acts on her own to relieve her unhappiness and is blind to the fact that her husband is up to something a little darker. And that's why I chose the title In Extremis, because In Extremis is Latin for, you know, being so involved in something that you, um, you're oblivious to the danger around the corner. Okay. Now, uh, Sharon Barrington, is she a housewife or does she have a, does she have a profession or a career? She sort of does, uh, they, uh, she manages uh, an apartment building that her husband bought. Um, mm -hmm. And she also has opened a, 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 a small store that uh, is uh, sort of trying to, she's trying to make a go of that. Okay. So that kind of gives her leeway to be able to move about freely, eh? Yeah, she's, uh, uh, but, but, and, and yet she's trying to break out, but she's still bound to the strictures of her marriage because her, her husband is very controlling, both in a religious sense uh, and also in a household uh, chores sense. So she's always facing this tension between him expecting her to take care of things at home and her trying to branch out and make a business okay. for herself. Okay, I don't think he'd ever survive in my house. <laughs> 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 or most modern women <laughs> right uh, that sounds it sounds like a really unique protagonist actually I, I'm really glad that you said that because I'm always encouraging writers out there in particular new writers to to branch out don't just write everything that you've read up till now try to think of something a little bit unique and uh, what challenges came to you from from trying to create someone in first of all in a different gender and secondly in a, a situation that I, I'm betting you haven't faced directly. You may have some empathies based on other experiences, but you probably haven't directly faced that particular challenge. No, I've never had an affair with my son's best friend. Oh. <laughs> this is the... I'm the, glad to hear the, that. <laughs> this is a sub, subplot that uh, Sharon, you know, yields to temptation and she feels guilty about it. And this is all getting in the way of... Uh, uh, you know, her realizing her independence and uh, being able to see clearly what her marriage is all about. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it was a big challenge to uh, create a, a female uh, protagonist because, uh, you know, uh, women, I'm quite aware, think uh, 
and act differently than men do as a general rule. And mm -hmm. yet I've, I've always, uh, I've always hung around with women and, uh, I'm a keen observer and I tried to make her credible. And, uh, so far the reviews are that she is. Excellent. Excellent. And, uh, you said that, uh, you are originally did not intend it to be a series, but you've, um, changed your mind. What changed your mind about it? Um, <clears throat> well, I, I left a few of my, uh, memorable characters alive at the end of it, which, uh, I figured I better do something with them. Um, and I had such, uh, uh creative fun, uh, writing the mm -hmm. first novel. Um, that I just really wanted to attempt something else. And I said, well, you know, let's take stock of where the characters are at the end of this. And uh, is there a, a conflict that would, uh, um, you know, be sufficient enough to support a second book? And I decided there was. So Excellent. that's what I'm writing right now. Excellent. Now, we should give some credit to your publisher, Ecstasy Books, Inc., and your book came out in June of 2018, so it really is a brand new book, and, and it's uh, great that our, our listeners can read it now and soon look forward to um, a sequel coming out. That That's great. So she's masking her anxiety with horoscopes and alcohol, Hmm. and then unwisely stumbles into an affair with her son's best friend. You'd mentioned about the... Uh, but tell us about the anxiety anxiety that she's suffering now that would be no doubt tied to her bad marriage is that right uh yeah and her guilt at uh you know having an affair with a 19 year old mm -hmm. um, and uh <clears throat> you know her her she's trying to break away from her catholic religion and her husband is very devout and he's trying to keep her there and uh in his controlling way and mm -hmm. so she she uh um is trying all sorts of different things. And the mm -hmm. reason I, I decide to uh, involve her in, uh, and actually all my characters, uh, uh, quite a few of them in this book have uh, moral dilemmas, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, there's a conflicted Catholic priest who hears something in confession. He doesn't know whether he should act on it or, or not. And there, there's... Uh, her husband, who's involved in this dark uh, conspiracy, and she doesn't mm -hmm. realize it. And uh, and I tried to make all of those characters credible and, and motivated to do something just a little bit over the line. So in mm -hmm. some cases, quite a bit over the line. So they're I, flawed individuals, basically, is what you're saying, which are the best kind of characters. Um, and certainly conflict is the basis of all literature and certainly genre literature, especially, you know. Um, so you've got to keep the conflicts going. But but sorry, I didn't mean to, to stop you on a roll there. No, I think we're all flawed individuals, actually. Yes. Uh, because yes. when you look at society today, um, and I, I did I did certainly spent most of my life doing that as a journalist. Um, what we see is the, the moral teachers that we used to have, like the church and the schools and our parents and so on, have fallen away a bit. Uh, the mm -hmm. church attendance is down. A lot of marriages end in divorce. Uh, the school system seems concerned with basic literacy rather than moral teachings. And so we're really required to make all these very serious life-changing decisions with very mm -hmm. little guidance it's really yeah. easy to make the wrong decision and yeah. i 
wanted to explore what happens when you do. Yeah. And you you touched on my next question, which was about your career in journalism. How long were you a journalist, Vivi? Um, well, I'm, I, I, I still am. Um, okay. Uh, you know, roughly 50 years. Wow. Wow. And what's been your beat for most of that time? Uh, I've been an editor most of the time, and uh, that was just uh, luck of the draw. And uh, my real passion uh, from, from a teenager on up is to be a writer. And mm -hmm. I was always told I was a good writer, but I never really got a chance to exercise it. So mm -hmm. I decided when I retired, I would try to write fiction. It's kind of the editor's uh, quandary where... The editors that I know, at least, they tend to be possibly the best writers because they really they the, the rules come to them naturally, the rules of writing, the, the technical skills. But there's always something that seems to hold them back. And I'm only speaking for the ones I know. And I think maybe there's they're too close. They're too close to the structure and uh, what they know should be. And, and it takes a real breakout moment. The editors that I know that have become successful fiction writers, they've all had breakout moments. Did you experience something like that? Um, I think, uh, well, obviously, uh, when I had to learn about fiction, I, d I knew nothing about fiction. So um, I took a couple of courses and read a couple of books and so on and jotted down ideas to try to get in the, the the frame and and it was surprisingly easy to start once I'd done that because you mm -hmm. just I did it all wrong of course I I just started writing right uh -huh. um, and uh, actually what I did first was I flushed out the characters because mm -hmm. I knew ultimately that the characters uh, if I was spending as long as I thought I would on this uh, would hopefully speak to me and, and guide me. I had no mm -hmm. idea where, where the story was going. I just wanted to explore these moral dilemmas. And uh, so it took me, uh, I, I, only, I could only write it here in Costa Rica. So it took me three winters uh, mm -hmm. to write it. And uh, surprisingly, I was told, you know, I'd read all sorts of stuff about writer's block and what you do mm -hmm. about it. So, and I never once experienced that. That's um, good. If I uh, and that that was, I guess, part of my editor's training that you just keep plotting, you know. Mm -hmm. And the, the beautiful thing about fiction is if something doesn't work, and as an editor, you know if something doesn't work. Mm -hmm. In fiction, all you do is make up something different. And yes. and in journalism, you have to go and uh, re-report the story. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's very true. You just make something different up and you keep going. And I, I mean, there are pantser writers and there are plotter writers. And uh, I, I really love work that is character driven. And so I can go either way on the pantsing or plotting. But I am a big advocate of story trees at the very least, if you can't do an outline, only because a story tree will motivate you in the tough times. You know, it's it's yeah. not cast in stone. You can always change it. Yeah, and I think uh, what I decided was my main plot, uh, which is a conspiracy to cleanse the justice system. Um, I, a group of lawyers, I, I, I hang around with lawyers, and I often hear them uh, you know, complaining about the justice system and what should be done about it and all of the problems and so on. And I, so, I, so I asked, uh, what if? You know, what if there was a group of lawyers who 
decided to do something about it themselves and be mm -hmm. vigilantes. And it's oh. a monstrous plot. And mm -hmm. uh, when I when I bounced it off a few lawyers, they said, oh, well, um, I can't imagine a lawyer doing that. Uh, mm -hmm. But if they did, he said, <laughs> one of them said, if he did, it would have to be for some overall improvement of the justice system. So that's what that's what they're that's how they justify what they did. Right. Right. Exactly. It's very hard when you're entrenched in a profession, especially one like the law, to be able to see yourself breaking it. I mean, you can only see it in terms of mental illness or something like that. I think um, different lawyers that I know, they they have it very ingrained in them that they'll follow this. So to be able to create a character and a storyline that goes so much outside of that, um, that, that had to have been a challenge as well. Yeah, and I had to make their choice uh, credible, even even though it's uh, yeah. an evil choice. Yeah, it but, couldn't just uh, be he they, woke up and he was dreaming, right? <laughs> no, no, and 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 one of the chief plotters uh, uh, lost his dearly beloved wife in a hit and run, and the and the hit and run uh, person got off by loopholes in the law and so on, and so he was motivated to do something about this. Okay, so there was a uh, catalyst. And, and he he sort of rationalizes. He took an oath to uphold the law, right? So mm -hmm. he's not going to, but he has to justify to himself uh, yeah. how to go against how to how to further that oath by doing what he's doing. Yes, yes. So how long are you going to be in Costa Rica? Are you going to be there for the rest of this winter that's now approaching? Uh, until April, yeah. Okay, so you've actually got the time to get the bones of another book underway, don't you? Yeah, I've got uh, about uh, four or five chapters into it. And, Excellent. Uh, um, you know, based on last time, I mean, I'm 75, and my first novel was published this year. I hope this one doesn't take as long. It won't. Um, <laughs> it won't. It's like pregnancies. The second one never takes as long. <laughs> At least not the childbirth. They all take more or less nine months, but <laughs> well, they always say that. The childbirth is easier the second time. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, but uh, you mentioned ecstasy. And, um, you know, I spent three winters writing the, the story and uh, about two and a half years trying to find an agent or a publisher. Yeah. And uh, so I got a real education in the fiction field that how oh, many yes. publishers there are and how particular their criteria are. And yeah. I had, uh, and I'm persistent, luckily, because I'm trained to be persistent. Um, mm -hmm. I had 46 rejections before I found my publisher. So that's fantastic. I think rejections are sort of a badge of honor. And, and I do not believe that writing teaches an author anything about the writing industry at all. Um, once your book is written, it really is trying to market it, trying to edit it, trying to find a good editor that you can work with if you're not a good self-editor. Um, and even if you are a good self-editor, there should always be an outside source that helps you. Um, it's just not good enough to do it on your own. It really isn't. And uh, all of those nuts and bolts are what the industry is made of, you know? Yeah, and, and there are, there's help along the way, luckily. And if I had any advice to give to other authors, uh, first-time authors, um, there, there's um, uh, an online uh, resource called Authors Publish, uh, which uh, alerts you to publishers who will accept unsolicited, uh, unagented manuscripts. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and sometimes um, you know it's it's major publishers who have an imprint that temporarily is allowing unagented um, submissions, and, mm -hmm. and you just would not have any other way of knowing about that otherwise. So yeah, yeah. to join, and uh, and the other is uh, I I sort of had a what I describe as a writerly um, inspiration, a rainmaker, I guess, uh, is a, is a, and she, she does, uh, manuscript evaluations and, uh, and courses. She gives quite a lot of talks about writing and plot making and so on. Barbara Kyle, um, mm -hmm. she is a superb teacher and, uh, very caring and, uh, she helped me a lot. So it's Barbara Kyle, and uh, also you said authors publish. Is that authorspublish.com or? I believe so, yeah. Okay, very good, very good. Anyways, Vivi, thank you very much for those tips. That's exactly what I look for from authors because we have so many new people trying to break into the industry and they really, for the most part, don't know where to turn. In the old days, we used to have something called the Writer's Market, which was a huge, huge volume print book. And it was almost always at a date by the time it would get into your hands. But now with everything being online, you can have up-to-date information so much more easily. Oh, that's great. Yeah. 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 Anyways, uh, I want to thank you, Vivi, for being on the show today and for the great information. And uh, enjoy your winter in Costa Rica. Okay. And thank you very much for, uh, for this interview. You're welcome. I want to thank Vivi for joining us today on Dead to Rights. And now, please stay tuned for my story, The Right Light, featuring my character, Serenity Walker. The Right Light. January 2nd, Midvale Library. I first became aware of her in the parking lot, but it wasn't until I was checking out a stack of cookbooks that I really saw her. She was attempting to tack a piece of paper onto the library's bulletin board. From her wheelchair, her reach would not extend to what we usually think of as eye level. I thanked the librarian and strolled over to where she struggled. Can I help? One doesn't want to take these things for granted. Many disabled people resent a too hurried offer, as it could imply they're not capable of managing. Yes, thank you. I'm still not used to this. She swept her hand, the one holding the pins, indicating the chair and her reliance on it. Rainey, my friend, had once told me that a painter lives by his eyes, that special vision that takes in every detail and stores it for a later use. The color, the shape, the size of things, the way they fit into their environments, the way a certain light will enhance an image. Not only painters, I thought, in my new profession as a private investigator, keen observational skills were definitely an asset. I'd left a successful career as a Crown Prosecutor on the fast track to the bench for reasons that might not make sense to anyone else. As a prosecutor, I'd worked with a number of private investigators, not least of whom was my old friend and former lover, Holland Jessup. Holly had taught me to really look at people without seeming to study them at all. 
The Midvale Library was one of my favorite places, largely because it was designed to allow maximum natural light to fill its inner girth. Also, it was on Main Street, and from it I could walk anywhere in the downtown area. Usually, I spent time in the library researching a case, but at the moment, my research was of the culinary variety. You see, cooking is not one of my many talents. Back in Toronto, that hardly mattered. Most of my friends could cook, at least passably, and a few spectacularly. And besides, the city was known for its restaurants. Now that I'd taken up residence in the countryside near Midvale, in the Georgian Bay area of Simcoe County, it wasn't so easy to keep good food on the menu. There were restaurants, of course, but on a day when I was working late or painting, I didn't always feel like driving into town just to eat. I'd spent most of the morning and all of the previous day on a case involving minor embezzlement from a local furniture store. Holly had not prepared me for the drudgery that makes up most work in the private investigative profession. Still, I was enjoying the newness of it all. Also, for people like me, there is a definite allure in being your own boss. But more on that another time. The mid-afternoon winter sun poured in through the library windows and draped its rays upon a truly beautiful face. Full lips and flawless skin, a face in profile, unadorned but reddened by the exertion. A slender woman, slight, I guessed that if she had been standing, she would have reached my chin, maybe five feet even. Her light brown hair was pulled into a loose ponytail. She wore a simple woolen coat, tawny brown, and a colorful shawl protected her knees from the winter chill. She turned, treating me to a glowing smile, and for an instant I was shocked. Her face the side that had been hidden from view was horribly marred, her ethereal beauty damaged. It was as if the left side of her countenance had been pulverized beyond repair. It must have been an accident, I thought, catching myself in my own reaction and returning her friendly smile. The injury did not seem new, was no longer raw and painful in appearance, but the disfigurement would no doubt be with her for a long time, unless some surgical restoration could be made. I took the paper and pins from her hand and glanced at the message before fixing it to the cork board. Single female looking for room and board in a wheelchair-friendly home. Sunlit environment preferred. Open to family or single female. No single men. I pinned the paper to the wall, tearing away one of the tabs with her email address on it, Lida at lidasplace.com. How do you feel about dogs, I asked, half-joking. What kind, she asked. Queenie's Alasa Apso. Not very big, but hairy, in case you're allergic. Nope, not allergic, but small is good for obvious reasons, she said, sweeping her hand over her wheelchair once again. She grinned, and I returned the smile. My place is a little out of the way, I said, but it's very roomy and bright. It's about five miles out of Midvale. Hmm, might pose a problem getting into town. I don't have a car at the moment, she said. 
We could always rent one for you in a pinch. Look, would it be weird to offer you a coffee? I actually have pictures of the place on my phone. I just moved in a month ago, I said. The crew is still finishing up a few things, but the bedrooms are done. Is it wheelchair accessible? Honestly, I said, I'm not sure. The idea of a housemate never occurred to me till I saw your note. But if we did decide to give this a try, it would be easy for me to have the contractor make sure it's fully accessible. All righty then, she said. Where's the nearest Tim's? It turned out her name was Lita Swan. Her parents must have had a sense of literary humor. But I did wonder whether it was her real name. No one else might jump to the conclusion of a pseudonym, but the question came to me naturally. You see, Serenity Walker is not my given name. I changed it for reasons I won't go into at the moment, a long time ago. My friends call me Rennie. Oh, she said, I really like the fireplace. Kind of masculine, don't you think? Not at all, she said. I love stonework, and the huge windows draw in so much light. Dark at night, though, I said, thinking how there really wasn't anything in the way of streetlights on my concession. That particular window faces front, which is south, but it does bring in a lot of sunlight all day. We put in skylights, too. The days are so short right now, she sighed. But getting longer. True, she agreed. What brings you to Midvale, I asked. My artist's eyes were catching something far away in hers, but maybe she was just tired. Six months ago today, she began, my life was torn apart. New place, new life. Her tone was clipped. Not angry, merely abrupt. I'd hit a nerve. I didn't mean to pry, I said. You don't have to talk about it. At least not at the moment, she said, and a twinkle returned to her lovely green eyes. Would we be able to have a look at this house of yours? Of course, I said, clearing up the mugs. My jeep is at the library. I helped her into my Cherokee and loaded her chair into the back. You might find it hard getting around in February. We get some brutal snow up here, I said. She didn't answer, but I figured it was something she'd already considered. We pulled into the long, grassy driveway and parked near my two-story Muskoka-styled chalet home. Ooh, la la, she said. That's a lovely design. An old friend created it. He runs a Toronto architectural firm. It's original, I said, aware that I was guilty of boasting. I nodded at Charlie, one of the workmen who worked for my contractor. In the spring, they'll pave the driveway, I said. That'll make it easier to access. I unfolded her chair and placed it near the passenger door on the frozen grass. She hesitated, turning a worried look my way. I'm not working yet, she said. How much are you asking for rent? Honestly, I haven't given it a thought. Why don't you join me for the tour first? Then I can make us lunch and we'll talk about it. She treated me to an odd smile that caught me off guard. Despite the Scottish roots of her name, Swan, I thought she must carry a long line of Irish. It was there in the emerald depth of her eyes, the feminine cut of her chin, the long ivory neck. But most of all, it revealed itself in the devilish smile that belied her pain, her disability, 
and the horror that still lived on the left side of her face. There was something about that smile. It was contagious. I couldn't help but chuckle when she said, What the hell? We're here. Let's have a look around. I pushed her chair over the frozen lawn and up the stoop to the doorway. Once we were inside, though, she took over. The chair had a motor, but in small quarters I imagined it was easier for her to operate it manually. She guided it through the foyer to the right, where the hall opened onto my huge living room. Surrounded on one side by a high-ceilinged stone wall, into which was set a large gas fireplace. The second wall featured a two-story picture window, special glazing to keep out the nasty Canadian winter. The third side led to the foyer, where we now paused as she took in the room. I admit to a certain amount of pride as she studied her surroundings. I'd worked closely with Gunter, my architect friend, to make sure my new home was both beautiful and functional. The fourth side of the room was marked by a cutaway ceiling with a loft hallway leading into three rooms. My own bedroom was open on the left and the large guest room was next to it, but that door was closed. I guessed she would like it. The third room was, of course, a full bath, but you wouldn't be able to tell at the moment as that door was also closed. My studio was at the front of the house on the other side of the foyer. If we had turned left instead of right, we would have entered another open area where my easel stood near another two-story picture window. Of course, given our short winter days, the light was augmented by special lamps to mimic natural light. The right light is critical for an artist. Rainey produced his masterpieces in a converted warehouse apartment on King Street. As apartments go, it wasn't the worst I'd seen, but he loved it for its gothic windows and the light they invited into his studio. How would I get upstairs, Lita asked. Well, as luck would have it, I grinned, knowing I was about to give her a surprise. We have a built-in lift. I led her back into the foyer and to my studio. As a fun feature and to help me move canvases up and down stairs, Gunter had added an old-style elevator lift between the studio and my kitchen. Oh my God, these are amazing! My heart skipped a beat when she rolled her chair toward my work in progress. Like any artist, my first instinct is to protect my babies. That's still wet, I said, warning her not to touch it. Still, I couldn't help but feel gratified by the light in her eyes as she studied my winter wonderland in progress. In the old days, when I first learned to love the thrill of a new canvas, it was all about control for me. It was about seeing a scene or a face or anything and capturing it in minute detail, a photorealism that sent Rainy into exasperated sighs. Rennie, he would say, waving a brush in my face, it's perfect, simply perfect. But, I'd say, waiting for the criticism that I knew would follow. No, but, only that, it's perfect, but that's all it is. It needs to be less than perfect. It needs to be more than perfect. It needs to be you. I knew what he meant, all right. One only needed to look at his crazy, wonderful works. Pick a piece, any piece, 
every single one a masterpiece, every single one of them a reflection of the artist, of his joy, his pain, his struggle, and his rise. Everyone in the art world knew Rainey. They all knew his passion. But I knew the man, knew him and loved him with all the love that was in me to give. So now I no longer paint with the chiseled control of a compulsive perfectionist. Now I paint with joy. I paint with pain. I paint with love. And if I do say so myself, the work is pretty damn good. Serenity, Lita said, shattering my memory with a whisper. Yes? I think I want to live here. Okay, we'll work something out, but first let's ride in the lift. I'll show you your room. It's funny how these things go. I'd gone to the library to load up on cookbooks, part of my New Year's resolution to give up my champion status as world's worst cook. And I'd left the library with a new housemate, a friend. I didn't poison her with my poor attempt to make lunch. I figured it was safer to stick with sandwiches and canned soup. Lita Swan loved her new room. Maneuvering around the house was no hardship for her. The design was roomy and clean, and the lift, while being somewhat of a joke between Gunter and myself, ended up as being a godsend for Lita. The biggest problem was going to be the unfinished drive, which made moving around the acreage difficult in a chair. Oh, did I mention it was an acreage? My new house was built at the front of a former tree farm. We'd cleared about five acres for the house and to reduce bugs and allow for a small garden. Another resolution. I've never had a green thumb. Of the remaining 60 acres, about 40 was filled with overgrown scotch pine, and the back 20 was an old logging area, complete with beautiful trails where I'd already discovered a new love of hiking. The bugs were something to talk about. Even in the cleared area, they could get nasty in the springtime. But Lita said we'd cross that bridge when we came to it, and Greg, the main contractor, had already given me a few tips on how to reduce them. Basically, we'd have to make sure the area surrounding the house remained fully cleared. We'd left one oak and a couple of birch standing because they were, frankly, gorgeous. But other than that, Greg had hired a crew to clear-cut the area. Last spring, the bugs hadn't been too bad. The black flies had beat a retreat into the back 20. The horse flies had also retreated, leaving only dragonflies and butterflies in my new meadow. In the end, we agreed that Lita would move into my new house on concession four. She was looking for work in Midvale and would need a wheelchair accessible vehicle. I recommended a sturdy four-wheel drive rental until she could afford to buy. I wonder what that'll cost, she said. It struck me that she might not have the funds for rent, much less for a rental car. Look, I said, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. I actually have a second car in the garage you can look at if you like. I don't use it much, and it might need to be modified to make it easier for you to use, but you're welcome to it. She hesitated, but finally she said what all women say when asking about cars. What color is it? Red, of course, I laughed. All my Jeeps are red. She shook her head. Really? You mean to tell me you have two red Jeeps? Well, it's like this. I drove my old baby nearly into the ground. 
When it was time to buy, they wouldn't give me a trade-in value for it, but it still runs fine. It's just a bit of an eyesore, that's all. I couldn't bring myself to let them haul it off for scrap metal. It's got a lot of life left under the hood. As do I, she said. As do I. I drove her back to her bed and breakfast on Main Street. She was paid up till the end of the week and wanted to make some arrangements before actually moving in. I guessed those arrangements were likely of a financial nature. Frankly, I was happy to let go the place for much less than we agreed on, but she wouldn't hear of it, and pressing the point seemed inappropriate. It wasn't a huge amount, but I could tell by her voice that she would find it challenging out of the gate, at least until she was fully employed. Not wanting to lose the last of the afternoon light, I hurried home to my winter landscape. I managed to layer in a few fluid details before the sun went behind the tree line. Rather than power up the lamps, I wrapped my red brushes in cellophane and treated myself to a last look before nuking dinner. I carried my mac and cheese into the den and fired up my computer. Fred Montgomery had emailed a batch of spreadsheets for my review in hopes the money leak could be uncovered. Fred had only six employees, two full-time salespeople, two part-time, an office clerk-slash-bookkeeper, and a lady who kept the showroom looking nice. And, of course, Shania, his wife. My guess was that Fred already knew who was stealing his money. He probably preferred to have me say it. But I couldn't do that without proof. It was dark by the time I looked away from Fred's furniture P&L statements. He was still making a modest profit, as he had for years, but I could see where the margin had started fading about 18 months earlier. You would think, living as I do, far from the traffic of the city, that I would have no need of window coverings. After all, who's going to peek into my windows at night? An errant deer? A curious raccoon? But, you see, like Lita, I too have a story. And my story is an ugly one, one that leaves me with little, if any, trust for my fellow man. And so, aware that only the moon and the stars and the occasional bear might be of a mind to poke into my affairs, still I am a creature of painful habit. I rose to close the blinds before turning on the light in my den. And, as I approached the window, a sudden movement, swift and purposeful, flickered in my peripheral vision. What was that? A deer? A swooping owl? A workman returned for some forgotten tool? Crap! Get a grip, I told myself, lowering the blind. After all, Queenie, usually the first to complain about any strange noise or movement, was fast asleep under my desk. Was this the reason I was so keen to take Lita into my home, just so I wouldn't be alone in this house at night? I didn't know the woman, but I knew she had a story, one she was less than willing to share. That was something I could relate to. Fred's story, on the other hand, was a little simpler. He'd recently married a younger woman, Shania. And ever since he brought her into his life, his store, which had run impeccably, if modestly, for over 20 years, suddenly had sprung a money leak. It wasn't rocket science, but the challenge would be proving it. And when all was said and done, 
Would Fred care? Or would he consider it the cost of being married? The end. Join us next week for installment number two. Thank you for joining us on our first episode of 2019 titled The Right Light. Are you a published author? Would you like to be featured on our weekly Dead to Rights podcast? We're now scheduling slots for 2019. Please contact me at carrickpublishing at rogers.com and say Dead to Rights interview in the subject line. We'll love hearing from you. Likewise, if you have any questions about books or the book business or the writing craft for me or any of our featured authors, don't hesitate to get in touch with me. Same address, carrickpublishing at rogers.com. You'll find us on Facebook under Dead to Rights or under our Carrick Publishing Facebook page. You can also find our personal pages, Donna Carrick and Alex Carrick. On Twitter, we're listed as at Dead to Rights Pod or at Carrick Pub, at Donna underscore Carrick, and at Alex underscore Carrick. All music featured on Dead to Rights, including our theme song, Eyes of Gold, is original material composed and performed by Ted Carrick. Look for his work on YouTube at Ted Carrick Music. Thank you for joining us. See you next week. Let it rot.